Thank you, too. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When most people think of Harlem in the 1920s and 1930s, they think of artists like Zora Neale Hurston and Ella Fitzgerald and of the Harlem Renaissance that took place at that time. But even as Fitzgerald was making her singing debut at the Apollo in November of 1934, something else was brewing as well, something maybe even more radical. Even as many in Harlem were exploring traditionally elite forms of art and music and looking to make traditional black forms more appealing to elites, an increasing number didn't really care about what elites thought at all as they signed on to the Communist Party. At its height in the 1930s and 40s, the party could claim to have at least the sympathies of such black notables as W.E.B. Du Bois, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, and Paul Robeson, as well as the rank-and-file membership of black New Yorkers all over the city. These days, most of the history of communism in the U.S. is not well known outside of academic and political circles. But according to Mark Nazan, it's worth knowing about. Nazan is a professor of history and African-American studies at Fordham, and he is the author of the book Communists in Harlem During the Depression, which is out from University of Illinois Press. I asked Dr. Nazan to come in and talk with me about this relatively unknown chapter in American history. We'll bring you the first part of that conversation today, and we'll hear more next week. Mark Nazan, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Now, for a lot of us, including me, actually, the Communist Party is kind of more of a boogeyman type thing than an actual historical fact because of growing up during the Cold War. Now, I know that that's not true, but let's go ahead and start out with the basics. What was the Communist Party doing in the 30s? The Communist Party in the 1930s was, in the United States, basically organizing the unemployed, uh, trying to build labor movements um, and organize unions, and also was very involved in a campaign for uh, equality for African Americans. In the other side of it, the Communist Party was trying to uh, arouse support for whatever the Soviet Union was doing at that time internationally and trying to make it seem as though the Soviet Union was the hope of the future. So you have an organization which, if you look at it from one perspective, is involved in a lot of very positive and important reform struggles, but also has another agenda at the same time. And that duality is what makes the Communist Party such a difficult organization to uh, get your hands on when looking at it at any one particular moment. So what was going on in the 30s? The United States underwent an incredibly rapid economic decompression that led to millions of people losing their jobs, losing their homes, having to double and triple up, um, and also losing hope. At this time, there was no unemployment insurance. There was no what we, today we call welfare. So if somebody lost their job, there was no safety net at all in terms of a cushion from you know structured government payments such as we have in the United States or every industrialized country. So if you lost your job, it, you know, in a couple of months, you could be out on the street and your family could be begging for food from charities. It was a traumatic experience that no one was prepared for. So there was a lot of desperation 
a foot in the land. I mean, New York City had, you know, huge bread lines. There were shanty towns in the parks that people called Hoovervilles. There was a lot of despair. And um, what the Communist Party argued, you know, in the beginning, almost alone, it was the government's responsibility to provide for the unemployed. So they organized people to march on city halls and state legislatures to demand, you know, the government provide. The slogan was work or wages. Doesn't sound very radical now, but it was it was radical then at a time when the prevailing philosophy was a kind of laissez-faire and an expectation that the market would right itself. Kind of maybe what some conservative Republicans believe today, but that was the dominant uh, point. Let the market right itself, except after three years it didn't, and then you had widespread, visible desperation. So this was a period of economic depression, not just in the United States, right? It was worldwide. Um, you know, it hit uh, Germany, and you know what came out in Germany was Nazism. It was a scary moment because when people were that desperate, they turned to leaders who promised quick fixes. Now, you could sort of say, okay, well, maybe the United States is lucky. We didn't end up with fascism or communism. We ended up with FDR. But the interesting thing was that the Communist Party was kind of pushing FDR and the Democrats to enact some of the legislation which we now take for granted. So this radical organization, which did have another agenda, ended up lead, help, helping to pave the way for some things we take for granted today, such as unemployment insurance, labor unions, uh, social security, and things of that sort. But the other thing that the Communist Party fought for was racial equality at a time that very few organizations were willing to do this in a really uncompromising way. It's hard for me, having grown up or been a kid during the Cold War, and for a lot of people who were a little bit older than me, to understand communism in a way that doesn't include everything that came after World War II. What did the Communist Party at this time believe, and was this a major period for the Communist Party? In, in the United States, the Communist Party, their slogan was for a Soviet America in the beginning of the Depression. The idea was that the Soviet Union was a model where the government would own everything, that a communist party would run the government, and that this would lead to much greater equality and much greater happiness. Now, in the Soviet Union, this also led to mass murders, which they conveniently either left out or didn't know about. So in in retrospect, certainly the slogan for a Soviet America doesn't seem very attractive. On the other hand, the slogan, uh, black and white unite and fight, or work or wages, or free the Scottsboro boys, makes a lot of sense. And this is, you know, true of any radical group. You're going to have aspects of an organization's program which seem very reasonable, and then you're going to have things which seem destructive or dangerous. And I guess in the United States, since the Communist Party was not even close to making a revolution, they weren't the real threat to take over. If they were, it could have been pretty scary. On the other hand, what a lot of communists did is is do things that other people were afraid to do. You know, uh, go down in the South and try to organize blacks and whites together in unions. Go into company towns, which were ruled by the point of the gun, 
and organize people for, for civil rights and their right to organize unions. And they also took on racism in America because in the 1930s, not only was the South segregated, so was every big city. If you were black, you had to sit in the balcony of a lot of theaters. You couldn't be served in many restaurants. 90% of the jobs were off limits to you. And public swimming pools were closed to you. There were only very limited number of places where you could live, where you could work. And there were a lot of places where, you know, even though there was supposedly equality under the law, you weren't going to get served or treated properly. So this organization said, if you were white and you were a worker, until you got rid of racial discrimination in all aspects of society, you were not going to be able to win your rights. They made an argument that white working people were not going to be able to progress unless they fought racism against blacks. That racism against blacks didn't only hurt blacks, it divided the working class and was responsible for this whole system where, you know, people had no protection when they were unemployed, no protection that they were organizing unions. And it was, at that time, it was a very radical idea. It later became picked up by a lot of people who weren't communists. It became the dominant ideology of American liberalism by the 50s. But in the 30s, liberals didn't believe in racial equality in a place like New York. Let me give you an example. One of the things communists said is that you couldn't stop racial equality at the social level. There were a lot of like liberals who said, well, I believe in economic equality and political equality, but I don't believe in social equality. I don't believe blacks and whites should socialize together, date, marry, go to dances. And the Communist Party took the position that was absolutely wrong. You can't have any kind of equality unless people can socialize, date, and marry. So they held interracial dances and advertised interracial dance. They expelled people for objecting to black and white people swimming together or eating together at restaurants. This was very radical at the time, but it also helped jumpstart movements for racial equality that then spread into the larger society. Men are just like streetcars going each and every day. Men are just like streetcars going each and every day. If you miss this one here, you'll get another one right away. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking this week on the show with Mark Nazan. He's a professor of history and urban studies at Fordham, and he is the author of the book Communists in Harlem During the Depression, which is out from University of Illinois Press. I asked Dr. Nazan if the Communist Party in the 1930s was considered to be a serious social threat to the American way of life, the way that it would come to be seen later. Well, some people considered them a social, a serious social threat. They were in between a serious social threat and a radical fringe group. I mean, by the middle 30s, communists were influential enough in the labor movement, the civil rights movement. There were also a lot of writers artists, novelists, 
actors. So because of their cultural influence, they were pretty well established in, in a lot of areas of American life, but they didn't have a lot of people in Congress and they were in no position to, you know, to elect the president, elect the mayor. But, you know, you went to Hollywood, there were a lot of screenwriters, actors, um, people involved in, in, in making movies who were in or close to the Communist Party. A lot of great jazz musicians were in or close to the Communist Party, a significant number of writers. You know, there are these areas where the Communist Party made some inroads that were not insignificant. So not a real threat if you look at it from the current perspective. But, you know, these are times when people are pretty worried. You know, they see Hitler coming to power in Germany. There's, you know, the Soviet Union, which seems like it's a pretty brutal society. You have Mussolini. So, you know, there were people who worried that if enough things went wrong, this group could become very dangerous. Now, the Communist Party was not a homegrown movement in the United States. Who were American communists in the 30s? Well, this is the interesting thing. Even though the Communist Party had this international affiliation, the people who became communists were homegrown people. They were writers. They were union organizers. They were students. There were people who lived in certain neighborhoods. Now, this wasn't across the board. There were certain areas. You had more people who were likely to be communists among immigrants and the children of immigrants than among native-born people. You had more communists among black Southerners than among white Southerners. You tended to have more people who became communists who, you know, worked in factories than who owned businesses. I think that it was, you had a lot of people in the Depression who were talented, but had their way blocked. You know, they were going to school and had to drop out. They were working at at one job and got pushed down into a lower job. They were victims of racial or religious discrimination uh, because the job market was tighter. And so some of those ambitious people who saw their normal opportunities blocked, may have seen this group as an opportunity to, you know, to exercise leadership and maybe open up opportunities for more people. Um, Pretty much the people who gravitated to the Communist Party tended to be somewhat intellectual, even if they may not have been formally educated. Now, what was going on in Harlem at this time? What was life like there for people? Take everything that happened in the rest of New York, in the Depression, and double it. Twice as many people unemployed, twice as many people evicted, and far less opportunities. And the fear that if any time there was a tragedy in America, black people would become the scapegoats. So there was, there was hunger, there was homelessness, and then there was fear. So here you have an organization coming in And they say, black and white unite and fight. And they go in, if a family's evicted, they take their furniture and put it back. If they're hungry, they march on, you know, the local charity and demand that they get food. And then when you have these nine young men who in Scottsboro, Alabama, who were accused of and summarily convicted of 
uh, of raping two young white women who were riding in a freight car with them on very shady evidence, this organization says, stop the legal lynching. And people are saying, wait a minute, you know, there's something new here. And it's interesting because we've never had black and white people together trying to do something for black people. So it was like something new. It was also not something people necessarily trusted right away. But if somebody's taking your furniture and putting it back in your apartment and they say, why don't you, we've done it for you, let's do it for your neighbor, a certain number of people are going to respond. So that's what happened. Uh, You had great desperation and this organization, which was pretty small, but very organized, came in and they, they attracted you know, a significant number of people. Not all those people stayed in, but there was a kind of esprit de corps among this and feeling like, hey, we're doing something new. We're doing something nobody else is doing. The people tended to be young. They tended to be somewhat intellectual. They tended to be somewhat adventurous. They grew because they had a a very direct answer to the, the particular desperation that people were experiencing. Tell me about the rise and fall of the Communist Party in Harlem. I think that the, the rise, you never got to the point where this organization became the most or, important organization in the community. The churches remained the, the sort of organizational bulwark, along with the, the local Democratic Party. But that being said... In Harlem, you elected a communist to the city council from Harlem in 1943, Benjamin Davis. And Adam Clayton Powell worked very closely with the Communist Party until 1945. It was a very important part of this community's life until the beginning of the Cold War. And then what happened was when the whole sort of society including the government, started to say that the Communist Party isn't just radical, it's disloyal. It's identified with an enemy of the United States because the the Soviet Union, whatever Stalin was doing, was not at war with the United States in the 1930s and, in fact, was an ally of the United States in World War II. But in 46 and 47... You know, the the Soviet Union seems as though it's become the major enemy of the United States. And when that happens, then you go from this group being radical to this group being disloyal. And when that happens, people who may be working with the Communist Party but are not absolutely um, convinced communists start to say, it's time to cut my losses. This group is going down. And I don't want to go down with it. So in the, in, the, in the middle and late 1940s, as the Cold War escalated, most of the people who had worked with the Communist Party in Harlem distanced themselves from it, broke with it. Some of them denounced it. Some of them just, like, quit or wouldn't work with communists and said, sorry, you know, you're, you're poison. You know, it's hard enough being black without also being red. So by, let's say, 1950, this organization was really a shadow of itself. And, and it was really the idea that if you're, like, if you're a communist, you're disloyal. 
That wasn't the issue in 1933. People didn't accuse the Communist Party of being disloyal because the Soviet Union wasn't an enemy of the United States. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, we will look at horses in New York City. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Mark Nazan. He is a professor of history and urban studies at Fordham, and he is the author of the book Communists in Harlem During the Depression, out now from University of Illinois Press. Let's get back to that conversation. Now, how did African-Americans sort of fit into the whole international vision of the Communist Party? I'm not sure that, well, that there was one international vision. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union, which pretty much controlled communist parties around the world, would shift from period to period into what, you know, was their major priority. So there was one point at which... They have the United Front Against Fascism, where they're tra- and and there they're going to work with liberals. They're going to work with church groups. They're going to try to make it seem as though communists are just a little more radical version of Democrats. Then you know the the Nazi Soviet Pact comes and they they change the line again and they become more radical and try to break with some of the groups they have alliances with. Then. So the Nazis invade the Soviet Union and they're back to communists being just like everybody else. So that's the problem. There is no one line. It varies from time to time. And that can be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because where you stand is not under your control. And I think that's also something that I think a lot of people learned, even people who liked a lot of what the Communist Party did. And I think, personally, they made some pretty major contributions to American life in dealing with the issue of unemployment, in workers' rights, and in civil rights, an organization where people outside are pulling the strings as much as that organization is not, in the long run, a very good instrument to, you know, express your interests, no matter who you are. So I think that through experience, a lot of Americans who are in this organization learned that as much as I like what this organization did, I want something I can control more. So I think that's another reason why so many people ended up leaving and why communism by the 50s was dead in the United States. It was dead because partly because it was dangerous to be associated with a communist Party, but it was also dead because people began to feel, I'm tired of being a puppet on a string. So it's a combination of those things. What demands did the Communist Party make on its members, both politically and personally? It depended who you were. See, if you were a big shot, like a Paul Robeson or a Richard Wright, As long as you didn't denounce the Soviet Union publicly, they they might let you pretty much do almost anything you wanted. If you were an ordinary member in like, you know, a group in the Bronx, they might say, today you leaflet, tomorrow you sell the Daily Worker. We don't like you talking with that Trotskyist. You better stop talking to that person. It varied depending on who you were, where you were organizing. And 
The, the one thing that seemed to be you couldn't do was attack the Soviet Union. If you attacked the Soviet Union or even criticized it, you were you were going to be either kicked out or denounced. And that itself says something about the organization, that fundamentally we're about defending the Soviet Union. And over the years, that proved to be it, the undoing of the organization. Because ultimately... The stories of what Stalin was doing there were going to come out. And then how do you defend that? I mean, you could say capitalist lies, but then in 1956, Khrushchev publicly admits it. And, of course, people should have known well before then. Now, whether you should have known in 1933, I'm not sure. But 1937, 38, the purge trials, you should have suspected something up. The you know the non-alignment pact with you know Nazis you should have suspected something, so you know eventually this line defending the Soviet Union was gonna really make this organization not only vulnerable to the outside but even vulnerable to people in the organization who really cared about social justice and you know and equity and all the things they claimed to stand for. One of the things that I thought was interesting that I saw in your book was that one of the things that they asked people to do was if you were black to hang out with white people and if you were white to hang out with yeah. black people. And that for a lot of people was kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. I think that it, that was kind of cool, actually, because at that particular time, there was such a taboo about this. And, you know, it kind of forced people to, to do things which the society said were horrible and turned out to be pretty ordinary. But how do you know unless you do it? That was one of the more, you know, like having an interracial dance or saying, okay, you have this group. It's got to be integrated. That I, I thought that was kind of cool, actually. I mean, even though, like, it's very hard for a normal organization to do that because the normal organizations, most of the time, they don't have the power to order people to say, you have to do this. The thing about communist parties is they were quasi-military. You were under discipline. If you were given an order by a higher body, you had to either obey the order or leave the organization. So you could order somebody. Okay, you have the Estonian Social Club of Passaic, New Jersey. You have to have African-Americans swim in your pool. Otherwise, you're all going to be expelled. So... They, that could happen. Or the Finnish cafeteria in Weehawken has to, if a black person comes to eat there, you have to let them eat. Is that a terrible thing to do? If you're black, 99.9% of the places you, go, you would want to swim won't let you swim. 99% of the places where you want to eat won't let you eat. So if this organization sets an, as an example... It kind of spreads. And yet, could the Democratic Party do that? They don't give orders. Could the Catholic Church do it? Maybe. But they never did. If the Catholic Church decided to order, you know, say to St. Rosa's Parish, you have to have 10% of your members that are black or else we're closing the parish, they might have done it. They could have done it, but they didn't. This organization did that. 
I mean, it's kind of ironic that an organization sort of run by this country outside was the one that took the biggest step to challenging all these racial taboos. I mean, in some ways, that, that, that again raises these disturbing questions. Why didn't some American organization do that? Why did it take this organization to do it? But somebody had to do it eventually, or else we'd still be living that, that way. That was Fordham History and African-American Studies professor Mark Nason. We'll talk more with Dr. Nason next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to know more about Dr. Nason's other project, looking at the history of African-Americans in the Bronx, go to fordham.edu slash B-A-A-H-P. You can also give Dr. Nason's book a quick perusal before next week if you'd like. It's called Communists in Harlem During the Depression, and it is out from the University of Illinois Press. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is now available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing or if you're just looking for some more information, click on podcast at WFUV.org, or you can listen online in our audio archives. If you'd like to drop us a line with any questions or comments, our email address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening to the show, and have a fabulous weekend. I'm going to put my nickel in a slot machine and play my solid cinder. I'm going to scratch Peck and Susie Q, cause I'm on a bender. I'm so high and so dry. I'm sailing in the sky. I got my roach around. I can't come down. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.